Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1973. And first, I just got to say, Paul, you are a great podcaster. How do you do it? I cheat. (laughs) The movie? The Sting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Amy Nicholson. How are you, Amy? Hello, Paul Shear. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to get stingy with you. I Lovely am... to do this beekeeper prequel with you. I... <laughs> oh, the beekeeper. I love the beekeeper. <laughs> I haven't even talked about the beekeeper. Oh, man, to it's be so good. To be Oh, that movie is so good. Amy, you uh, reviewed my friend's movie in the New York Times, uh, Laura Kenley Chin. She was my writer's assistant on uh, NTSF, or Children's Hospital. I think she was on NTSF. I, I've just worked with her over the years. And uh, you wrote a really uh, wonderful review about her movie, Suncoast, which is coming out. I, re- I loved her book. Um, oh, I didn't know you knew each other. Her book yeah. is fantastic. I'm quoted her on her book. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, oh. if you get that hardcover, you'd see my name on the cover. Oh, that's what I get for, for <laughs> getting things on Kindle. I know, and your ability to read, like, that's the one thing I really am impressed with. Looking at your review of that film, like, in her book, she says, I'm like, God damn it, she read the book and saw the movie? Good for you, Amy. Uh, hey, man, gotta take it seriously, man. I do appreciate it. Well, you know what? This is a movie that is seriously fun. Um, we talked about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid on this show a while ago, and I think that's the movie that people often think about when they think about Robert Redford and Paul Newman. But this movie is a movie that really took Hollywood by storm. And we're going to talk about this pairing of these two guys, this unlikely pairing, this unlikely movie that came together, not against all odds, but in some of the most interesting ways. Yeah, there's a huge gap between the way this movie looked on the page and the way this movie looked on the screen. I think one of those movies is the type of Oscar movie that people take really seriously as a dark, dark, dark drama about the 1930s. And the other one is an Oscar drama that was just a lot of fun. And you know what people wanted to see? The one that was fun. Absolutely. And I want to talk about the making of this movie as far as stylistically, the music, the way that they constructed the sets, and really the way that they ignored what the 70s were were doing in their films and really kind of embraced 
a return to Hollywood, uh, not even in the production of it, but in the way that they treated this era. Yeah. And I really want to figure out with you, why do we go through these cycles of nostalgia? Why does it feel like whatever year it is, we really want to see movies that take place like 25 to 30 years in the past? What is that about? Because that cycle was really hot in 1970 about the 1930s. Well, you know what, Amy? If we are able to do all that, the feds will be the least of our problems. Let's unspool it. The year is 1973, and we are in an Oscar showdown between The Sting and The Exorcist. Both films are going into the Academy Awards with 10 nominations each and a drop of bad blood. Warner Brothers, the producers of The Exorcist, had turned down making The Sting. So the rivalry between the films is spunky? The Sting's producer, Julia Phillips, invited the Warner Brothers guys who said no to their movie to the first screening. And she knew the sting was good when one of the Warner Brothers guys left saying, I'm going to go home and slit my wrists. (laughs) That story is from Julia Phillips's spunky book. You will never eat lunch in this town again. She went into the Oscars that night on diet pills, cocaine, weed, Valium, and some more Coke and some more Valium. Her book is a really fun read, but she also went into this Oscar showdown thinking, It's going to be them or us. And you know what? At least the sting doesn't send you out into the street, unsure whether to hit a church or a bar as the exorcist did. That was her great quote on it. The sting's own director, George Roy Hill, said, I've always wanted to do entertaining films. I'm not a very deep thinker. And that turned out to be the right tone for that year's Oscars, which took place a month after a grand jury named President Nixon as a co-conspirator in the Watergate break-in. Nixon was still president. The Vietnam War was still killing people. Life was confusing. Headlines were intense. Everybody in that room and watching the Oscars on TV knew that that was what the Oscars host, David Niven, was saying without really saying it as he came onto stage to present the presenter of Best Picture. But famously, because the world is feeling crazy that year, David Niven does not get that far. If one reads the newspapers or listens to the news, it is quite obvious that the whole world is having a nervous breakdown. In the motion picture industry, we do not, thank God, contribute to the shambles by manufacturing tanks, flamethrowers, or rockets. We do something to try and help keep people sane. We turn out entertainment. The award for the best picture is never lightly given. And now, to divulge the contents of this year's most important envelope is a very important contributor to world entertainment and someone Quite likely. This was the year of the Oscar streaker who not only survived David Niven's devastating improvised punchline that we talked about in our Goldfinger episode, he later ran for president using the slogan, not just another crooked dick. That was almost bound to happen. (laughs) But isn't it fascinating that... (laughs) Fascinating to think that, that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Okay, so George Roy Hill made The Sting to entertain. He cast the stars of his 1968 film, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, which we did here on the podcast, as the leads of this con movie, which 
is interesting because really neither one of them is exactly right for the parts. Uh, For the part of a down-on-his-luck, sloppy drunk named Henry Gondorf, he cast Paul Newman. For the part of a young, impulsive boy with much to learn, he cast Robert Redford. Newman spends the entire movie calling Redford kid when they look essentially like buddies. And you know what? In a movie with this many twists, who cares? Because rounding out the cast, we got Robert Shaw as the mean, rich Mark Doyle Lonergan and bit parts from a ton of interesting faces. I'm talking about Charles Durning, Eileen Brennan, Charles Deerhop, Demetra Arliss, and Robert Earl Jones, the father of James Earl Jones, whose death at the hands of Doyle's men starts this very complicated plot in motion. The Sting came out on Christmas Day, 1973, and was a gigantic hit. It was the top-grossing film of that next year, and even today, it is still number 21 on the adjusted list of the top-grossing films of all time. To give you a scale of how high that is, it is between The Lion King and Raiders of the Lost Ark. More money than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Less money, however, than The Exorcist, which might have lost the big Oscars at the time, but it clawed its way up to number nine on the all-time list. But... This year, people had sting mania. It was huge. And a lot of that is because audiences really clicked with the nostalgia of this 1930s setting. That's what George Roy Hill really loved. You know, Norman Rockwell illustrations, classic ragtime music that, you know, like the actors wasn't exactly right, but it worked anyway. So what was in the zeitgeist that Christmas of the sting? Well, the number one song on the charts was all about capturing time, about appreciating the past and trying to make that nostalgia last into the present. It is Jim Croce and Time in a Bottle. If I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do Is to save every day Oh, love Jim Croce, love Jim Croce's mustache more than anything. Uh, I mean, this, Amy, you do it every single time. I mean, this connection to this movie, perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. Even the idea of Jim Croce's life kind of dovetailing with the music of The Sting. Because Time of in a Bottle wasn't a brand new song when it hit number one. It had kind of come out been fine, sort of disappeared. And then it got used as the end credits in an ABC TV movie called She Lives about a girl who had cancer. And then eight days after it was in this TV movie, Jim Croce died. And then the song climbed to number one on the charts, which is not that different than the ragtime music we're going to get it into, which also had this strange, weird rebirth at this time. Well, it's interesting because this whole movie is kind of kicking it to the past. I mean, George Roy Hill uses a lot of 1930s stylistic techniques. I mean, the film starts with this 1930s era universal logo. They used editing wipes to transition between scenes and Irish shots. You know, I think that there was an element of George Roy Hill that wanted to make the film the way he would make it in the 70s, but kept on realizing it wouldn't be as good as if he made it like he was in the 30s, which is why a lot of this film is shot on the back lot. I remember one of my first times ever coming to LA and going on the Universal tour, the sting and the back lot of Universal, there were tons of landmarks from this movie that I had never seen. But it sounded like, oh, wow, that's the window from the sting and that's this. you know. But this movie was done on a budget, even though Robert Redford and Paul Newman are each getting paid 
$500,000 for their role, which is equal to about like $3 million in now money. Now money. I, mean, I didn't even realize that the Santa Monica Pier that we have today with like the old arcade building, that that was the building of the carousel here. I did not realize that so much of this was just shot in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would, they basically, I think they understood that if you're going to shoot it on location, it would be just astronomically expensive. So I think they use a lot of these techniques. And Amy, you know, to your point about who cares, we talked about that in the opening, like who cares? There is an element of this movie that just feels like fun, like a play. It's like, oh yeah, we're having a good time. Like we're in it. And it reminded me immediately of what Soderbergh does with Ocean's Eleven, right? There's this element of, we know who they are. These are hugely famous actors and they're just doing something lighthearted, loose and fun. It's true. Okay. I mean, I'll just be honest. Like I told you last week, I had never seen The Sting before. So this is my first time watching The Sting. And I thought, wow, I bet this is going to be just like a crazy classic. Can't believe I've always missed it. And then I watched The the Sting and I was like, well, it's fine. It's a fine movie. I don't dislike The Sting. How on earth did this win the Oscars? Like, how is this considered one of the greatest movies of all time? How is it so big? How did it beat The Exorcist? Again, kind of in a repeat of last week, we are talking about American Beauty beating out The Sixth Sense. And here it is, The Sting beating out um, The Exorcist. Horror movies always coming in second to these films. And so... To me, trying to wrap my head around the sting just starts with like, okay, why did we just want escapist entertainment? What's going on? Because that feels like this, that, that that's what happened. People are like, you know what? That movie made me really happy. Give it an Oscar. You see, oh, wow. I don't know. I think this movie is better than Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I enjoyed really? it. Oh, I enjoyed it so much more. I just felt like this movie is Hollywood. You have these two giant stars just chewing scenery in a plot that kind of keeps you on your toes with great actors. It just is like a perfect light piece. I mean, it's not heavy, right? And I think that's probably the difference between most Academy Award winners that they feel like they're saying something. And this is just a good time, but it's a good time done by professionals. And I felt like that was the thing I really connected with in this film. I was like, oh, I'm having so much fun watching this movie. It just feels like this is Hollywood. If I was to represent Hollywood in a movie this time, these actors, it just feels like these are icons goofing off. I can hear that. I, mean, I, I had a lot of fun kind of going back and reading reviews of The Sting from when it came out. And even the critics who really liked it, because a lot of critics really, really liked it. Everybody liked it. They liked it in ways that I thought were sort of funny. You know, right. The positive reviews had quotes like, this isn't a movie, it's a recipe. Or right. the sting itself is kind of a con game. They called it light, frothy entertainment of the finest, of the highest order and a lightweight delight that has the slightly stale, carefully crafted feel of a surefire sequel. They're just like, we like how you made this movie, kid. Or actually, we like how you made this movie non-kid, George Roy Hill, kind of coming in and doing a grown-up spin on just a fun movie. You know, and I think that there's always been this want that the audience wants the Academy Awards to be a bit more populist. And very rarely does a big popular movie win the Academy Awards, especially in the last, you know, what, 10, 15 years? Maybe there's one or two in there. But yeah, for I feel the like most... one of the last times was like Titanic. Right, yeah. And I feel like this is similar to me to Titanic. It's just big and fun and it brings everybody together. So I do like that this movie works on that level. Although 
I'm unsure if this movie would have worked as well if the original casting was in there. Because we talked about the miscast. You know, Johnny Hooker, that's the character that Robert Redford plays, was supposed to be 19 years old, right? It was uh, offered to Jack Nicholson and he turned it down. Um, Paul Newman, he was a little bit like, I don't know if I should do this. They told him not to do comedy films because he didn't really have like the light touch to play the part, which I really disagree with. I think that Paul Newman, I'm such a fan of him. And I think that he brings a lightness to all of his characters in a way. And I love the way he played this. And this feels like a like Paul Newman, the man, uh, more than other roles in a way. Like, yeah, like it, Paul Newman, the guy who's known for being King Practical Joker in a way that yeah. I feel like George Clooney has kind of kept Try to has tried to keep up. Like on this movie, Newman was doing stuff like I think he he got into a, a fake fight, fake-ish, real-ish fight with like George Roy Hill over George asking him to pick up some booze and him picking up booze to have a drink in his office. He picked up like a bottle of vodka and some beer, and then George Roy Hill wouldn't pay him back the eight dollars for booze. <laughs> and Newman acted like he was really mad about it and like George Roy Hill sent him a letter like what what don't you understand about friendship this long is like a three page letter about like how dare you ask me for money for booze and so then Newman took a chainsaw and cut his desk in half <laughs> <laughs> I mean that was what was happening on this set did you hear that that's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard. You know, the original character of, uh, of Gondorf, right, was, it's a bigger man, right? And I think that that's why in Sting 2, which we will never talk about, Jackie Gleason plays Oh, we're going to talk about it. Oh, you know, right. I pulled a clip from the trailer. <laughs> okay, well, I have to admit, I am kind of interested. I just wanted to hold it off just a little bit. I think, Amy, and I'm, I may be wrong on this, but I have a strong recollection as a child, I like the Sting 2 more than the sting. Oh, like, that oh. sounds like such a good young child, Paul, to your opinion. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> this character of Henry Gondorf, you know, wasn't even really a main character in the first script. So this movie was not created like Ocean's Eleven, where it was like, let's get all of our fun friends together and do a big caper movie. It kind of came together slowly. If Jack Nicholson says yes, if Paul Newman says no, this is a very different movie. I don't think this is a movie that becomes the sting in the sense of what the sting became that year, this giant, giant, giant film that, you know, as we joked about last week, this image of the two of them, that Norman Rockwell image of them as I think burned into our American cultural literacy, like of just like, Oh yeah, we understand that if we have not seen this movie, we understand that that's Paul Newman and that's Robert Redford from a movie that they did more than anything that you've ever seen from uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid. Really? See, I think Butch is more imprinted in my brain. But okay. 
But I, I like where we're going with this conversation because this is, I think, a fascinating story in star casting, changing the shape and tone of a project. I mean, basically, when you hear about what this film was when it was submitted to what it was when it was made, it's like radically different. And a lot of people have like chimed in talking about it. You know, Ward himself, David S. Ward, who wrote the script, he was trying to do that thing that people always tell like young aspiring filmmakers to do, which is write this script, write a script that's so good that every studio is going to want to make your script and then say, you can only make it if I direct it, right? And he was like throwing that gauntlet out there, trying to get it made. And he's part of this kind of youth movement. Like he's a younger kid, you know, in the early 70s, very early 70s at this point, coming out of film school, looking around and being like, oh, the landscape is kind of full of younger talents like me and connecting with younger producers like Julia Phillips, like her husband, Michael Phillips. And they're all finding each other and kind of creating this new Hollywood together. Really talented people coming out of film school and they couldn't get arrested. Nobody would read their scripts. Nobody would really meet with them. And wouldn't it be, you know, interesting if we had a little money to develop scripts or option uh, scripts with these, with these people? And it, it sounded great. And yeah, then this movie winds up getting into the hands of George Ray Hill. And George Ray Hill is looking at this and he's like, there's a lot of dead bodies in this movie. People are getting thrown in cement mixers. There's a lot of people getting thrown in cement mixers. And it was more of like a gritty, harder edge tale of like what the 30s were like. Or I think part of the story was that Redford's character, Hooker, like his brother lost a boxing match that was rigged. And so then they killed his brother. So then he had to get revenge, almost like the Pulp Fiction story, sort of. Right. It was like a, a dirtier, bloodier story. And basically, George Ray Hill was like, I don't want to do a movie like these young kids would do. George said, I want to make the, the script that David Ward wrote was more of a Depression era gritty tale. The textures were different. And George said, I want this to be like the Saturday Evening Post. I want it to be glamorous and elegant and no runny noses. I remember he said, I don't want to see that. And again, this is the, the, the process of filmmaking. You, you go in very often with a, an eye, with a vision that you think, yeah, this is great. This is the way we all like it. And something comes along that makes you re reconsider and your first impulse is always, oh, no, that's terrible. You know, it's wrong. It's not what we've been thinking. That thing that he's saying there about runny noses, weirdly, that was like his strange touchstone. Every time yeah. George Roy Hill talked about what he thought young kids wanted to make, he was like, they're going to have people with runny noses on the film. And he just was offended by that. He didn't want runny noses. He wanted, like, handsome men in good suits. Well, it's interesting because I've been listening to the Barbara Streisand book, which is a, a must listen. I know that you probably could read it in the afternoon. You it's know, like the book 300, is a thousand pages. pages. It's so the audio book is 48 hours. Oh my God. That's like a James Mishner book. Oh, and it's amazing. And I'm listening to her read it, which I think is honestly the best way to, to hear it. But what I think about this movie is that this time, the 70s, this independent film, like it was sloppier, it was dirtier. And this is like this embracing of old Hollywood. And that's, again, why I think it's a perfect Academy Award film. And when you put it up against The Exorcist, that's a runny nose movie, right? That's a gross movie. It's it's dirty. It's a little more... Um, it is a literally, I think there are literally running noses in that movie. There's yeah, I was going to say, Lots of dribbling yeah. fluids from all sorts of orifices. Do you know about the controversy of plagiarism on this film? So David Moore 
sued for plagiarism, claiming that the screenplay was based too heavily on his 1940 book, The Big Con, about these real-life conmen Fred and Charlie Gondorf. Now, Universal quickly settled out of court for like $300,000, which really irked David S. Ward, who had used so many nonfiction books as research material. I mean, it didn't help that Universal quoted excerpts from Mars' book, properly attributed, in the souvenir booklet uh, produced as part of the film's publicity materials. But soon after, Fallaway Productions claimed that since they had bought exclusive adaptation rights to the Big Con in 1952, that any movie that ripped off that book also ripped off them. That case was thrown out because Fallaway failed to get the author to join in. And then Paul Newman sued for a refund of the California income tax that he paid on his salary for the film, saying he should have been charged the out-of-state rate, not the residence rate he won. <laughs> and then Newman and George Roy Hill later sued Universal for lost revenue from VHS sales on this film and Slapshot. So there are tons of lawsuits going on. And you know that when there's a lot of lawsuits, the movie is successful. I mean, that's the only way to really understand if a movie is working is when everyone tries to get a piece of the pie. Man, lawsuits really feel like against the spirit of this movie, doesn't it? Where it's like, if you're not a con man, if you're a guy who's like playing it straight, that sucks. I mean, Newman gives a whole speech about that. Sometimes we played two a day when I was with O'Shea's mob. Of course, Chicago was a rigged town. Fix was in. Dicks took their end without a beef. We had it down to a business. <laughs> and a really stunk kid. No sense being a grifter if it's the same as being a citizen. You know, putting this all together the way that you're sort of describing it, I can now see the recipe that the critics are talking about, where it's like, you have kind of an older veteran director, a director who's like known for his period pictures. You know, he's done like World War II, World War One, Wild West movies, Titanic movies himself. He did his own Titanic movies. He did a James Michener book. He did Hawaii you know, he does these classic giant movies, but it's produced by young people. It's written by young people, but then starring the people who are just currently two right. of the biggest stars on the planet. I mean, they're at different arcs in their career. I think like Redford's definitely on the way up. Like this movie really launches, I would say like his string of just like hits, hits, hits. And Newman has been kind of fading. He's had a lot of flops. Like I saw this public interview that he did right before the sting came out, before people had seen it, where he's kind of giving a retrospective of his career to date. And by that time he'd been in the industry, you know, two decades almost, and he's getting heckled. Would you say then that you're in a rut? (laughs) I'm just a happy hooker. And so I could see him being like, okay, okay, just you wait. I'm going to do a movie that shakes up a little bit of what you think of me, where I'm not going to be this like handsome, serious rogue. I'm going to be a handsome, funny rogue. I'm going to be a guy who like shows up into a room and pretends like I'm totally drunk. Sorry, I'm late, guys. I was taking a crap. The name's Shaw. This is, to me, the movie. The best scene of the movie is this scene. I mean, the performance here is fantastic. And it's more than that. This movie is a card trick. It really is. You have to be impressed with the sleight of hand that is going on. And there's a great moment right before that scene that you played where Newman is shuffling cards and the camera goes from his face to his hands and then back up to his face. You're like, holy shit, is Paul Newman doing that? No. The answer is no. He There was a hand double, a very creative cut in there. But that's why I think this movie really works. Because there's like this ta-da factor. 
I mean, the movie ends and it's just like, oh, that's it. We just we just kind of did the final reveal. Like, is this your card? The whole movie led up to that moment. And you're like, yep, that's it. Go. And, you know, even something like Ocean's Eleven, which I love, the first Ocean's Eleven. I actually really like all those movies. Maybe not three as much. But there's this. Actually, I do like three. Uh, <laughs> there, there's <laughs> I don't this, like, like eight. It was just like what I haven't. I'm I'm talking about the OGs. I haven't oh, gone. OGs. Fo- Sorry, I haven't gone. I haven't <laughs> gone forward. <laughs> um, but there is this kind of simplicity to it where you just wa- like is a card magician the best entertainer? I think a card magician can be the best entertainer in a moment, right? I've seen and I love magic, and when you watch it, there's nothing better. Um, you're like, I, this is blowing my mind. You know, I'm not trying to figure out how they do it. I'm just enjoying it. And I feel like that's what this movie is, is essentially the, you know, a, a giant card trick, a giant con. And the movie lets you in on some, doesn't let you in on others. I mean, I did see the twist coming and I was so excited to see the twist coming. I mean, did you see it coming? I did not see the twist coming. I I believed in the twist for like... 10 seconds, long enough to think, oh, this suddenly did become a 70s movie after all. Well, what I think is so interesting is the way that this movie actually doesn't cheat the twist. And we talked about that with Sixth Sense, right? Does this movie hold up? And I was watching it with that eye, and it does. There are, you, everyone who's there and involved, It's there's no lie there, Right. They're not pulling it over your eyes, but you're also learning. Did you pick up on the clues? I mean, the reason why I picked up on it, and not that this I'm patting myself on the back, and I wonder if an audience was with me or not. I don't know. Because I think there's we're trained now to watch movies like this. Like we're on, I think we're just, a movie like this, I think it's harder to pull it off because it's been copied now so many times. But I feel like what I loved about the twist was they gave you all the ways to understand that it was a con in doing the con where you just paying enough attention to it, you know, renting the, that abandoned lot, how you pull the person in, they have to not know that they're being conned, you know, everybody playing their roles. I think the only way that this movie cheats it a little bit, and I think that gets away with it is Paul Newman and Robert Redford both have these moments of despair, right? They're like, I think there's a moment right after, right after Robert Redford deals with um, Charles Jerning and the Fed, and he goes back to see Paul Newman, he's kind of, it looks like things are weighing heavy on him. And I think that that's a director's trick, right? He's nervous, like, oh shit, what if this doesn't work? Now we have so many plates spinning. But you're supposed to believe like, oh my gosh, I just sold out my friend. And vice versa, when Paul Newman's like up in bed with Eileen Brennan the night before, like, I think he's nervous, like, I hope Redford doesn't get killed. And... On top of that, he's also nervous about the this scam, this this con. So I do think it works. I don't think that they're cheats. Well, the cheat that I went back to check is there's also that very low-key sort of flirtation love affair between Redford and the woman who works at the at the, yes. at the diner, uh, at the diner waitress, which, by the way, I'll just say every single movie of the 1930s, I just love the idea of sitting at a diner and eating meatloaf. That just sounds like heaven. The blue plate special, yes. Ordering a blue plate special, throwing down a nickel for coffee. Oh, that's my dream. But, you know, they have that little exchange when he, like, talks to her for the first time at the register. And she sounds so fabulous and world-weary. Hey, where's June? She quit. I filled in for a couple of days until I can get a train out of here. Hey, where are you going? I don't know. Depends on what train I get on. 
And as he's walking away, the camera holds on her and she smiles. And it's the smile that I first read, as I think you naturally would. Oh, she thinks Redford's cute, right? Right. And only watching it the second time was I like, can I buy that that smile also means, oh, I'm absolutely going to kill that guy. And maybe, maybe I I can buy it. Maybe. I think that there is a a thing, a, a language that is used in this movie of we did it. We got him. We hooked him. And you see it multiple times. Like it, it's the nose swipe, right? right. It's like, Which just yeah. made me think of MacGruber. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. The, I guess I never noticed that MacGruber took its whole assembling the team from the sting. Well, you know, what's so funny to me too is like the, the idea that like both this and Butch Cassidy have these weird musical sequences in them. And I was wondering like, are you just George Ray Hill tipping your hat here? Like what, like what's going on? Like, you know, it's like this, like the montage of him getting ready was very similar to like the uh, why do birds suddenly appear? You oh, right. Cassidy the scene? Yeah. Yes. But, you know, there's something about that where I feel like every one of these characters shows their hands as they like walk off. Right. They kind of like, you know, when their back is turned. So I feel like to your point, that's where the movie is clever. It shows you something and you may not know why you're seeing it, or you may make your own assumption about why you're seeing it. And you know why I think this did really hit, though, despite the the mood of it all, or in addition to the mood of it all, is that this is essentially a movie that's about performance, right? You know, the Mm -hmm. Oscars love movies about Hollywood, about making movies, about making art. Love it, love it, love it. And even though this is a 1930s movie about con men, it is also just a movie about performance. It's also a movie about acting. You've got, like, con men auditioning to be con men, basically sounding like they're talking about their resume. Name's Curly Jackson. Worked for Gary Bryan out of Baltimore. Jackson. Jackson, Jackson. Oh, yeah. You ever played The Wire, Curly? I wrote for it long ago. I can shell, mock for it, anything you want. I don't run with riffraff and I only drink on the weekend. Me specialty is an Englishwoman. All right, Curly. We got a rack of suits over there. Pick yourself out a nice tweed one. That's all right. I got all my own stuff. <laughs> You've got the pleasure of watching actors, you know, watching Newman play a character who's being drunk, who is deliberately getting Doyle's name wrong just to make him so, 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 so mad. Tough luck, on hand. But that's what you get for playing with your head up your ass. <laughs> a couple more like that, we can all go to bed early. Name's Lonigan. Doyle Lonigan. You're going to remember that, Mr. Shaw. You're going to get yourself another game. You follow? And you just got these, like, scenes of people building sets. It's like you're watching a movie within a movie. You know, you're watching them build the set of this, like, horse gambling den and cast it and get everybody in costumes. And then you're watching George Roy Hill around it watch these people build it by building his own set for them to build their set in. So it is kind of a little bit of, like, a congratulatory Hollywood thing. Even the way that he starts the movie being like, these are the players. Here's an illustration of me, George Roy Hill in Norman Rockwell outfit by a camera calling my people, the players to let you know, we're just putting on a show here. Like it's almost like sitting down at the movie is a con, right? Like this movie admits when you sit down to watch a movie, you're watching people go through the routines, playing characters that they aren't really for the purpose of getting your money. That's what going right. to the movies is. You're 100% right. I love that. I didn't think about this movie as being Hollywood. You know, we've talked a lot about George Ray Hill. We've talked a lot about Robert Redford. We talked a lot about Paul Newman. But really, who I just need to spend a moment on is 
Robert Shaw. God oh. damn, Robert Shaw is so <laughs> fucking good in this movie. Like, he is truly, wow, I love it. I love his performance in this. Like, it is, you know, I think I often think of Robert Shaw as the guy from Jaws, sadly. And the way that he carries himself throughout this movie, he is such a great bad guy. Wow. I mean, so perfectly cast. He is. He's so scary. He's that scary combination of like posh, but bloodthirsty. Yeah. You know, like there's that bit early on that I think really lets us know his character where he's on the golf course golfing with his buddy. You see that fellow in the red sweater over there? His name's Danny McCoy. Works a few of the protection rackets for Canaro when he's waiting for something better to happen. Danny and I have known each other since we were six. Take a good look at that fist, Floyd. Because if he ever finds out I can be beat by one lousy grifter, I'll have to kill him and every other hood who wants to muscle in on my Chicago operation. I mean, this is the movie that got him Jaws. It had it shared a lot of like the same kind of makers and producers and stuff. And they're like, Spielberg, you got to cast this guy. And even his limp, which I thought was like a character yes. affectation, it's just his actual limp. He like what? He busted his knee playing racquetball. Maybe he was just on the Lakers. We're always getting hurt. <laughs> I, I love that limp because it's just subtle enough to make you feel like he's a guy who worked hard to get to where he is. And I think what I like about that character is you believe that he is a tough person to con, right? You're, they're going head to head with him. He's smart. He is as smart as them. If we're supposed to believe that Gondorf is like this kind of semi-retired big hustler who has seen it all, done it all. I believe that this guy is an equal ally and the way they pull him in and the questions that he asks and the way that they have to kind of manipulate their plan, that whole way that they do the painting of the Western Union office to get that guy into this picture. It's like, it really is smart. And it, again, the movie doesn't take any shortcuts. It really does give you every character and they push at different moments. Um, I love the big twist of, Newman having protection for Redford too. I mean, like it all makes sense. And I think that a lot of times in movies like this, you have to dumb down your bad guy and you don't give your bad guy that many wins or you really feel the stakes of that final act. I should say like that final 10 minutes which I think is hard to do because if you are watching Ocean's Eleven, you know they're going to get away with it. And part of the fun is how. Like they leave you out of the plan enough that you are like, oh, that's how they did it. And I think that there's this beautiful mix in here. But here there was, and going back to that idea of like Paul Newman, Robert Redford being anxious and seeing it on their face, like that I think really goes a long way to adding some weight to, oh, no, no, this is a, this is serious. Like, this is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, part of me wishes I was in a little bit more in the plan because I like, I like, I think my favorite kind of con movies are where you know the plan enough that when the plan goes wrong, you know that it's going wrong. And then you get the pleasure of watching the plan also go wrong and then watching them correct the plan. Why I didn't like Ocean's 8 is it just felt like they never told us the plan. We just watched a bunch of women in amazing suits, all of which I wanted to own walk around and execute the plan without breaking a sweat. And I was like, well, where's the fun in that? I want to watch them work for it a little bit more. I mean, honestly, though, my favorite con movie of all time is Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I just like that one because oh. you really get to watch them train and practice and work on their craft. I like I like that part of it, the performance element of it, the learning to yes. 
eat with a cork on your fork so that you can look like the moronic brother. All of that. I you know I agree. I love Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, a movie that was kind of much maligned when it came out too. Um, I will stand up for that movie every day. I love that movie so much. Oh, I love it. I think it's great. But here, I think what's interesting is they they do something where they give you breaks of the plan throughout. And I think this is, again, part of a con movie, right? That opening con is great. You get to see them pull it off. As an audience member, you don't know what's going on. And you you start to catch up with it, right? Throughout this movie, there are little mini cons. There are little things that you're learning. The cards seen on the train, like that, you're understanding what's going on there. You, under, you understand the threes and nines. It's one of the only times where we kind of go off with Robert Shaw for a second. You know, this movie does pretty much exist in the world of Robert Redford and Paul Newman, but it kind of breaks that to go over to Shaw to give you that. I mean, occasionally this movie does that, or it starts off with Shaw before somebody comes in. But I think one of the great moments that you can enjoy, like what you just described, is what I talked about, which is meeting that guy at Western Union. Like, no, I want to meet him. Like, oh shit, how are they going to do that? And how are they going to do that in 24 hours? And that was kind of fun, like seeing them scramble, right? And and there's this energy of, will it all work? I always loved the the places moment. You know, all right, he's coming, the buzzing. And I understand now, like when I went on that tour as a kid to Universal Studios, like why that window, like I want to see that window now. I want to go on that Universal Studios tour and look at that window <laughs> if it's still there and not burnt down. But um, because there is something, like that window is is iconic, right? Like I like as a kid, I was like, well, who gives a shit? Show me the back to the future courthouse. Like, but that window, while there was nothing in that room, and that was the whole thing I remember from the tour more than anything, there was no room in that room. It was just basically like that guy on a ladder. But that to me is the stuff I like just seeing the inner workings of the plan, like how that all worked. I love seeing, and I'm forgetting his name, but he's so great. The guy who does all the horse racing narration. Oh, I love him. I love him. That's a face that I think I've seen in nine million movies. Uh, Ray Walston. Yes, Ray Walston. Oh, like that. Like and and the reveal of that, and then knowing, and then once you you so you get the you get the fun of. I go, oh, is that Ray Walston? It sounds like Ray Walston. And then when they cut yeah. back to that room, then you see him like, oh, great. And then that, and then they start to lead with him a little bit more. And you hear them talking about it like he's like he's shooting the movie within the movie, even the way they're yeah. talking about it, like they're wrapping it. They're at the post at Belmont at 38. We are waiting on this one. I'll call Belmont next. That's it, fellas. <laughs> I want to repeat that, ladies like here, you know, when Doyle has come to the club and now he's finally leaving, they can put the whole act down. Now, here's what I didn't quite understand. So let me know your interpretation of it. And I'm opening myself up to be very dumb. So Ray Walston is reading real horse races that have just finished. That's what I think is happening. Okay. Right? Because he's like reading stuff that would have happened maybe minutes ago. an hour or less ago before the news would have trickled down to Chicago. Right, because I think there's like an energy here where obviously there's no internet, right? There's there's ways to, you know, no one's going to get the, the results immediately. So if it's close enough, they can kind of cheat it. Uh, and I think because they're writing the boards the way they are, they can kind of push races about like 30 minutes or an hour or something like that. I yeah, guess. I mean, that, and they're that picking would... like real winners so that 
They so that if like Doyle it. went to, you know, the bar that, that night and he was like, oh, I want all this money on Blue Note, people wouldn't be like, what are you talking about? Oh, and that, oh, by the way, talking about like showing the plan in action, that moment where he's like, I want to do it again. And they don't have the money. Oh, and the way that they kind of create that thing with those like bit players on the side to, you know, who come back in and kind of get in his way. And then the race starts and he's watching out the window. Like there's so many moments of the plan going awry, except for the final plan. Well, you know, though, you know what this movie really reminded me of? And I would be very curious to know how much it was modeled off of this is Inception. Right. Oh, interesting. Because this movie is all about getting inside of Doyle's psychology. You know, they have that meeting at the beginning where it's like, what do we know about this guy? We know that he only plays games he can win. We right. know that his MO is to get close to like another gangster's business, kind of be their friend. And then as soon as he figures it out, kill them and take the business over. And so then they come up with this like fantasy, you know, this dreamlike scenario that they know he'll buy. Like, A, they know he'll buy playing for betting on horses when he knows he's going to win. And B, they know that he'll buy that Redford is getting close to Newman and, and in a way wants to kill him and take the business over. They like put that idea there because they know it's how he feels about it. Right. And it makes me feel about all of the work that Inception does to get inside like the head of, of Cillian Murphy, you know, to figure out like how he thinks about things and what would be believable to him and what are his relationships like with the people in his life. And then like they're doing here, construct fantasy scenarios that, play on his emotions in absolutely perfect ways, getting his name wrong to make him like angry and feel like he has to defeat you, you know, or setting up a kind of like workplace scenario where he sees Robert Redford get insulted by Paul Newman and really believes that this guy will like take down his boss out of like revenge. Well, I think, you know, you can go one step further and go like Nolan, you know, in the, in, in the inception and also the prestige makes movies about conmen, what you see, what you get, how they play on those two things. You know, it, it's a very, it's very much about, I think, tickling that part of your brain, right? Like getting it, like, and I feel like you start to game the movie, the movie is gaming you, you're, you're, you're more interactive with the film because you are putting yourself like, could I do it? Could I get con? You know, you're in this, I think it creates um, an edge of your seat experience. I would absolutely get conned. Also, I never realized that con and con man is short for confidence. That that seems yeah. so strange. Like a con so I guess he's confidently lying to you. Right. And you when you get conned, you're conned because somebody just confidenced at you. You got really confidenced at Yeah, yeah. Confidence, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's so strange. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. You haven't heard about the McCrispy yet? Well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.
By the way, I want to talk to you about this too. I was thinking about this movie and this is a movie that we keep on saying is fun, is fun, is fun and the confidence man and we're watching a con. But this is also a time where I feel like, and I may have my years a little bit wrong here, but we're also watching movies like Bonnie and Clyde, Paper Moon, Chinatown, right? These are all movies that roughly take place in the same time. And I know we talked about not wanting to make a movie with like snot nose uh, people (laughs) running around the screen. But this movie... I could see why people would maybe be angry at it because it's not like a real version of this time. Like those other movies, like Bonnie and Clyde, Paper Moon, like I think show a grittier side of this. And this is, you know, it's where they're not talking about the depression, you know, they, uh, you know, it's, it's there, but it's not like, it feels like it's not centered at all. Right. It, it, it's much more, um, I don't know. I think it's a lot more about, like embracing the silliness of it all or, or, or not looking at it from a, this is actually a pretty awful time. You know, I was thinking about that too, about this like obsession with the 1930s during this era. Of course I was like trying to put it into context, like, okay, so this was 37 years before this movie came out more or less. So this is like, if we were making movies today set in, you know, 1987 or something right. like oh, that. Oh wow. Okay. You know, I was just thinking, oh, it's interesting, kind of far away. Wonder why they picked that. So it goes. And then I had this weird thought because I was reading about, um, I was reading about the life of the guy with the squash nose, Charles Dierkoff, you know, who plays Floyd, who just has that amazing face. He's like, if you took Flea and then you asked an AI computer program to make Flea look even more Flea and you just like amplified the Flea, I think you'd wind up with like Charles Dierkoff and his nose. He had his nose broken like four times when he was a kid. That's part of oh, the wow. story of his nose. He actually played a character called Flat Nose in, an, in uh, another movie. But like, I was reading a little bit about his biography and he mentioned that, you know, he never knew his dad. Like he was born in the depression. His dad was like an alcoholic who like left and, you know, rode the rails. His mom was not fit to take care of him either. He like grew up during depression, you know, um, in his aunt's house. And I was thinking, I wonder if that's part of what triggers these nostalgia cycles is that I can imagine making this movie for him is like kind of exploring in a little bit. Why were my parents so screwed up? You know, what was it like to be living then in a time where what you see in this movie is everybody is cheating everybody. There is no such thing as like regular law and order and stability. Everybody's scamming. Everybody is crooked all the way up to the mayor, all the way up to senators. You feel the chaos of this time. And I thought, Maybe that is why we always have these like historical, you know, circles of nostalgia, how like in the 80s, everybody was making movies about the 50s. Is it because people are just curious in some dark subliminal way to understand what their parents were like when they were growing up and how their parents ended up doing things that ended up fucking them up as kids? Right. It's sort of like therapy. It's like living therapy. Yes. Right, because if you're saying this movie is made about 30 years ago, if you're a 27 year old writer, you're close to that, right? You're like, yeah. oh, that, you know, and it's and this there is, is what my something. parents lived through, and this is why they were bad parents, right? And I think that there there are these elements that are always present, you know, in in society. You know, I think that what this movie does differently is it uses the backdrop to do something that is a lot more. Fun, right? Where everybody else is like, look, we talked about Bonnie and Clyde on the show. We we've talked about, uh, you know, Chinatown on the show. Like, 
Those are movies I, I love, and I think they are gritty and fun. This is a movie that doesn't really have blood and gore. This is really, and I think now that you said it, I can't get my mind off it. I go, this is a movie about stagecraft. Like, uh, Inception is a movie about stagecraft and and acting and filmmaking. I think The Prestige has elements of it. But when I think back about other movies that the Academy loves, The Artist, Argo, I don't know if they won. I think Ar- The Artist did, right? I think Argo did win, too. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's... To me, it's like, oh, this is this is what we want to see. Like at the end of the day, the Academy Awards is giving out awards to the best film. And these are movies about film disguised as something else. So this is not a movie about the 1930s. This is not a movie about depression. This is a movie about people putting on a show. And and part of the fun of that, like The Sixth Sense, or even like movies like Empire Strikes Back is like, we know a little bit about it. And we're like, okay, we're trying to make, we're second guessing the movie. So like the director's also playing with us. Like, how can I cheat you, the audience? How can I make you fall into this hole? Like you and I were just talking about like, oh, the woman looked at him like this. Like, I'm going to use your knowledge of film to trick you to fall into my thing. But then when you rewind it, you'll see, no, 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 Bruce Willis was dead the entire time, but you assumed he wasn't. You put that there, you know, and I think that that's, that's the magic trick that I was talking about. Like that's the, it's, it's movie making with a magic trick. And I think that that all, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, did Inception win best picture? No, 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 it didn't. But I think that like, I think two things are happening here. I think like what you're articulating is probably why it won the Oscars. And I think the also cynicism that's kind of running underneath the fun of this movie. I mean, everybody in this movie is on the take. Everybody in this movie can be what? Even the guy who's like the, the guy on the train who just like gets people to their cabins. You can bribe him. Everybody in this movie can be bribed. And so I feel like that also, maybe that's why this movie hit with audiences separate from Oscar voters, you know, because this movie comes out Christmas day. Christmas day is like basically a month after Nixon goes on TV and says, I am not a crook. And so a movie that's like, yeah, everybody's a crook, though, and it's kind of fun. I can yeah. see that actually fitting the mood, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And by the way, like Newman was the only actor that Paul, that Nixon had on his special enemies list, which I think is very funny. Yeah, I heard about this. What does that mean, really? I have no idea. I just like the idea of like Nixon with maybe a glitter pen and a notebook, like doodling. These are my enemies in like a big loopy cursive. <laughs> um, you know. I really think this is an interesting film in the sense that it has so much acclaim, but it's also so much fun. And we've not really done that many films like this. Like we've mentioned a couple of ones that we've done like this, but it is to me, I think a recipe for what we want sometimes like this kind of escapism. Like I, I watch every Academy award nominated film this year. And I love them. I I thought this year was a great lineup of films. I don't know what you thought. They're just not super accessible, I think, for the most part. Um, I haven't heard that many people talking about them in casual conversation. Um, I I think there's a couple reasons for that, but like mainly because I I don't know how many people are going to the theater. I don't think how many people actually care. We've been in strikes and, and some sort of stuff like that. The ones that I feel like people have talked about oddly or the ones I've talked to most people about is Anatomy of the Fall, which I would argue is one of the most popular films that's nominated this year because it's essentially an awesome episode of Dateline. And I mean that <laughs> with no disrespect. Like it's like 
it's engaging, it's engrossing. But the reason why I think everyone's liked it, it's a movie that is, you know, largely subtitled, uh, but also has English elements to it. That's what we're connecting to. I mean, I don't know what you what you've seen on there too. I'm I'm not talking about what's the best. I'm not talking about like what's deserving. I'm just saying like what kind of has captured people's attention. If that's the only movie I really have heard people talk about a lot, and a lot of people have just told me, "Oh, I can't watch his own of interest," which is a real shame because I that is a real shame. I do hope people see it. That is one that I feel like you should see big. Yes, or at least loud, as loud as you can. Put speakers next to your ears. But I mean, this movie, I feel like nobody making it even thought it was an Oscar caliber film. I mean, everything that Newman and Redford said about it doesn't sound that excited. You like Newman said that the movie was, quote, very long on plot and very short on character. You're thinking about how the fact you don't really see Newman and Redford together that much. They kind of just like run through the movie. They don't do much or change. I feel like he thought as an acting challenge. It was a little short. It's more just about the fun scenes of seeing them meet and argue while like Newman is drunk in a bathtub. Glad to meet you, kid. You're a real horse's ass. Luther said I could learn something from you. I already know how to drink. And Redford complained apparently a lot on set because he was like, all my character ever does is he sets up things about the plot. Like, go here, pick up the phone, do this. Uh, go bet on this horse. And then when he's not telling people like where to go and how to meet people, he's just like running away from people as fast as he can. And he was like, I'm not doing any acting in this movie to the point that like George Roy Hill wound up giving him a golden statue of a roadrunner and just be like, here, this is your prize for running all the way through this movie. But he, you know, he is the only one who gets nominated for an Oscar here for performance. And his quote on it was, quote, when I didn't win, I was relieved. I just didn't deserve it. Hmm. It's interesting because I think that Redford has a very um a very hard job, which is carrying this movie on his shoulders. Like he is the straight man. We have to see everything through his eyes. And while it might not be as showy as like Newman doing that card scene, where um the emotional through line is there. This is a movie that is about performance. Like it is about us connecting with these two people. If they, if you can't connect with them, then there's no movie. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like, I think that was this kind of tension in making the whole film, this idea of performance and executing it right. I mean, the Newman story about like how Newman even gets involved is like, I think Redford and Hill team up first and then Newman finds out that they're doing a film. And so Newman is like, what are you doing making a movie without me? And so Hill's like, oh, I'll send you the script. And Newman reads the script. And he's like, I'm not this old, you know, fat guy on the end of his career. I can't do this. It's not for me. And so then Hill just, this is quote, because I'm perverse is the way he phrased it, started teasing him that it was like a really good part. He's like, oh, but Newman, this is a great part. You should do it. You should do it. Not believing that Newman should do this movie. He just wanted to be able to make fun of Paul Newman later when he turned it down and the movie got made like a ton of money. So he poked at him like, oh, I really, you know, it's like that way. You're like, oh, I wish you could come. Oh, I blah, blah, blah. I really wish I could have made coffee work or something like that. And then it happens and you're like, oh no, you called my bluff. That's what happens here. Like Newman calls his bluff like a couple of days later and calls him up and is like, you know what? You talked me into it. I'll do this movie. And Robert Redford was like, what? He's absolutely all wrong for this part. So then they all get together and have a big meeting about how they are wrong to make this movie. And they have this huge thing and nobody gets anywhere. And Newman's finally like, yeah, I can think of a bunch of people who'd be better for it. And they're like kind of depressed, but they aren't really settling anything. And then they walk to the elevator together to all say goodbye. 
And as they're waiting for the elevator, George Ray Hill apparently says, what the hell are we thinking about? This isn't a classic. We enjoy working together. Let's just do it. And you know what? I think sometimes that makes for a better film. Like if you're not, if you're trying to make an Academy Award film, like what does that even mean? But I think what we want to see is just, I mean, maybe if you want to make a hit, maybe, you know, like, and they, like everything else came secondary. They just made a movie that they wanted to do because they enjoyed doing it together. And I feel like that's what comes across. And I feel like that's what captures everybody's mind. I think at the same time, they are these respected guys in Hollywood in a time in the seventies, which is a weird moment. Uh, you know, we have like what Roe v. Wade that's this year, right. That happens. We have, uh, the troops pull out of Vietnam, gas prices, double inflation, triples. We enter a recession and here is this movie that is fun. I want to stick up for fun. I want to be able to stick up for fun. And why do we want to see a little girl get possessed by the devil? And, right, but oh, if those are your two right. choices, right? <laughs> like, and do you by the way, right. the two handsomest guys in the world run around and take showers and seem like they're flirting with each other the whole time, or do you want yeah. the one where the little girl is like absolutely traumatized? Yeah, and I think your answer is clear. And yeah. I, I'm so excited that we got to rewatch this. I don't know if I would have rewatched this. It's really just I, I had a great time. So much so that I'm like, can I show this to my kids? Would they like it? They might. It's fun enough. They might. I mean, it is kind of sad, though, that like this chemistry that you see Newman and Redford have on screen doesn't feel like it was really how they were in real life. You know, I, I read this story where Newman was like wanting to prank Redford the way that he would prank all of right. his other friends. And so he printed a toilet paper with Redford's face on it. And he didn't just print like a roll of toilet paper and put Robert Redford's face on it. He print, he printed up 150 cartons of toilet paper with oh Robert Redford's face on it. And then he got nervous and he never sent them to Robert Redford. So it's like he wanted to do it. He had the idea to do it. But he was like, I don't know how this guy would take it. And that's, you know, it's a little you know, bit of a bummer. But actually, why does it affect me in any way when what what's on screen is what's on screen and what's on screen is really charming? Well, I also think we're coming from a point of view um, – where we're just like looking at Clooney and Pitt and there's like that fun between the two of them. Or you look at like Kevin Hart and The Rock. Are they best friends or whatever? Like there's just a, they, they, they mess with each other. But when you just told me that story, I just thought about this article that I read with uh, Donald Glover about Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, the new Amazon show. And they asked him, why are you not working with Phoebe Waller-Bridge? Like what happened there? And I'm going to really bastardize his quote, but read the article. It's very, it's very good. He basically said, I realized that we would never be good partners because we couldn't like take the piss out of each other. We were on unaf- we were too afraid to say that sucks. That's a shitty idea. And if you can't do that in a writer's room, it's not worth making something with somebody because I'm going to give you shit. You're going to give me shit. He's like, in Atlanta, we had a room where you could say that's a crap idea. And somebody's like, yeah, all right. Like, and you make fun of it and you move on and there's no ill will. And I thought that was a really interesting point of view about writing. It's like, can you feel comfortable enough to shit on someone else's idea? I've been in partnerships where you got to walk that line, you know, and it's, you can be respectful, but also be like, nah, right? Um, And I feel like what you're describing there is this really interesting, these two great actors, very different styles. I mean, I, I will go to town uh, and if, if you ever had me put money on either one of them, I'm putting my num- my money on Paul Newman any day. I think his performances are light years better, I think, overall. And I love Robert Redford, too, but I'm just saying, like, 
Paul Newman, like, and I think he brings an, a charm to him. And I think we're really just, we're watching both of these guys radiate their own presence and they're just revolving around each other. They're not, they're not becoming greater by being together. They're just both doing what they're doing next to each other. And I think and that's weirdly, what's, I mean, even at this point, I think they were both like perennial superstar Oscar underdogs. Yes. You know, like Paul Newman was nominated for best actor a bazillion times, like over half a dozen times. The After seven times of nominating him and him losing, the Academy finally gave up and they gave him an honorary award in 1986. And so then in 1987, he actually like wins it outright for the color of money. But that's like 30 years of after his first nom, 30 years of like being up there and being kind of this like underdog at the Oscars. And then they gave Redford his honorary Oscar like in 2002, but he never won a best actor Oscar. He got a best director who needed ordinary people. But yeah, they never... Redford never like hit that part, you know? Yeah. And I wonder if there's a little bit of like sympathy for that too, kind of going into this thing, you know, like, oh, these guys, are we ever going to get our chance to honor him? We got to honor him now. But, you know, to what you're saying, even about like writer's rooms, hearing about like David S. Ward and the writing struggles he went through on this, like he was not always totally happy about how this movie worked out. And like one of the things he was really annoyed at was the music. Yeah, we were mentioning last week, like how the album for The Sting is like the number one album I see every time I go like pawing through like record stores uh, in the dollar bin. And the music here also won the Oscar. So I like went and did a little bit of like a, a read down on like what was his problem with the music. And a lot of it was that like David S. Ward, when he was writing the script, he was listening to authentic like 1930s blues because he's like, that's what these guys would be listening to. And then George Roy Hill was like, you know what? We're going to be doing ragtime. And ragtime this, you know, yeah, that song like, dun, na, 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 you know, the, the, the right. ice cream truck, that's my ice cream truck song, um, is all wrong for this time period. Right, right, like, right. That music is from, you know, the early 1900s, like 1906, 1907, you know, having them listen to this the whole way through would be like, I don't know, having a movie today where people are just like listening to Toto, like it's just a perfectly normal thing, you know, which it is. I love Toto, but you know what I'm saying? And so David Ward like really complained. He was like, this is not the right time period. This is crazy. And Hill just tried to like blow him off. And he was like, you are one of five people who will see this movie, who will know this. But there was this like really interesting resurgence in ragtime that was happening right then. It was kind of almost getting trendy, like, because this guy released an album of ragtime hits that had been recorded by the musician Scott Joplin, who wrote like The Entertainer and wrote a bunch of these things. He released it in like 1971 or two, and it won a Grammy. So it was becoming like hot again as like a throwback American music. And then when they threw it in this, because it was like rising in trend, it super exploded. And The Entertainer becomes the number three song on the Billboard's charts, which is wild. It's kind of like what we were talking about even with Wayne's World and, and um, Bohemian Rhapsody you know, like cycling back around. And it became so big that Scott Joplin, the guy who wrote these songs, who had died, you know, ages ago. He died really, really young. He died like young and unfamous, kind of in an Amadeus way, even. He was this like self-taught musician. Um, He tried to move into opera, but his operas got like stolen from him. And the second one was never staged. And he dies in a mental asylum when he's 48. He's like buried in a pauper's grave. They only put a a marker on his grave after the Sting wins Best Picture. Like all of this is happening around Scott Joplin, who had been dead for decades at this point. But they give him in the wake of the Sting his own biopic, The Story of Scott Joplin. And it stars Billy D. Williams. And this is the trailer. 
Do you recognize this music? It's called Ragtime. Do you know who wrote it? Scott Joplin. This is how it all began. What's your name? Scott Joplin. Never heard of Scott Joplin. You're an entertainer? And a composer? Scott Joplin. All right, should we cover this? <laughs> but it is, I, I think I like the idea that they're honoring what really was argued as like the first music that Americans made on their own that was ours. Right. You know, the, move, the music that inspired jazz and swing, that is ragtime. And so I think there was maybe this like, I don't know, even building up to the centennial idea of like, what is America? And are we honoring the right people? Yeah, I mean, you know, again, this is a movie that's like anachronistic, right? That's, you know, it's like, it's not, it's it kind of is like the way I speak about things. It's like, I'm not Googling it, but I think this is about, right, right? At the 30s, Joplin, right? That, that's what it is. You know, it's like, there's elements to this movie that are like that. I think it's, I think that also plays in a nice element to it. It feels right. And I feel like that's like, uh, that's kind of, sometimes more important in a way like what make to to go down easier like oh yeah that that feels right even though it might be not right yeah and it although does, do yeah. you know it feels wrong and i just have to say this before we wrap up i think it feels wrong that at the end of this movie robert redford doesn't take the money because i just don't buy that i don't I buy do. that after all of this work he doesn't want a cut of half a million dollars he's, you know why? he's just like you know what i'd spend it anyway yeah I'd only blow it. Come on. At least it's I buy fun. it. I don't know. No, it. I buy it. You know why I buy it? Because I feel like he got himself into this entire mess. He killed a man. And he knows, like, they, like I think that's why they end with that shot of uh, Redford looking at that guy who we meet, who has like the the busted nose, who's a friend of um, James Earl Jones's dad. Uh, you know, like that. That it's for him. He did that. That's his mea culpa. Is like, I didn't make it right, but I did. But I did. I'm not gonna make it wrong again. I, I think it, yeah, I think it ends on a way that makes us feel good, but I don't believe it. You know, the Casablanca yeah. walk into the sunset. I think I like this movie just a lot more when it's like weird and strange and kind of cynical. When it's like yeah. lightly teasing the girl who dumps Robert Redford at the beginning because she like genuinely thinks she might get discovered, you know, doing a burlesque show. You know, I like I like the fun element of it that kind of is like, yeah, we're all a little bit wicked. We're all a little bit idealistic. We're all, you know. We're all looking out for ourselves more than anybody else. As we wind down, I do want to give the last word, though, to Julia Phillips, because we started with her memoirs. I didn't realize that Julia Phillips was the first female producer to win a Best Picture Oscar. So when she got up there, high on all sorts of stuff, having the time of her life, she gets that statuette. And what I love about that moment is, you know, the person that uh, David Niven was trying to introduce before the streaker ran through was Elizabeth Taylor. And so it's Elizabeth Taylor who is presenting the Best Picture statuette to this team. And she really makes a point of like seeing Julia walk up there flanked by two guys, her husband and, and a guy named Tony, and handing the statue to Julia. And Julia just giving the quickest little speech and then like running off stage. You can imagine what a trip this is for a Jewish girl from Great Neck. Tonight I get to win an Academy Award and meet Elizabeth Taylor all in the same moment. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
You know what? Woman doesn't win Best Picture Oscar for another 15 years, not till Driving Miss Daisy. Holy and that shit. was a woman who married into the Zanuck family. So what are you going to do? Okay, well, let me ask you this, Amy. At this point, there's only one question. Um, can we hear a little bit of the sting too? Yeah, here's the trailer. Sugar and spice and a taste for vice. I am Veronique Lafleur. She's awfully good. I'm Elizabeth Windsor. At being bad. I'm Veronica Sherman. And with her in the game, they all Bye-bye. can be had. Jackie Gleason, Mac Davis, Terry Garr, Oliver Reed, Carl Malden. The Sting 2, rated PG. I mean, you gotta say, Terry Garr? Terry Garr has to make it sort of fun, but this movie has a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. No, I now that I'm hearing it, I don't think I did like this movie, but I do think it is based <laughs> closer to what you were talking about, about the boxing match, right? Like, there are elements that they're trying to reboot. I'm so glad they didn't make a sequel. Um, and we have our Ocean's Eleven to get a sequel. You know, that Ocean's Eleven, 12, and was it called Ocean's 13? <laughs> <You know. laughs> so, uh, Amy, you know, so we've talked a lot about the dynamic between these two people. And now it's kind of soured me a little bit that these guys weren't best buds. And this is their sequel outing or, you know, as close to a sequel as we're going to get um, of this movie that I think is very iconic. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, we talked about it here on the show, but I want to just play a clip. We've been restoring some of our old episodes, kind of tightening them up, making them ready for reuse. So uh, any of these movies that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, you'll see they're a little bit more edited and uh, have the flow of this show. So uh, I want you to take a listen to a little bit of our conversation with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I agree. I think what's so fascinating about the way that I mean, I guess I'm thinking about it like a poker game, maybe because this movie starts with with um, with Robert Redford playing poker. The way they deal the deck in this movie mm-hmm. is that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are really awesome. You know, they're just amazing. The coolest. They're the coolest. And bank robbing is fine, honestly. Like, we don't really see it not being fine because right. they're not hurting people. They're, uh, well... There's little bits of like, you know, they blow up Woodcock. They have that really fun back and forth with Woodcock, the man who's protecting the train. Woodcock? Yes, sir? You know who we are. Uh, uh, you're the hole in the wall gang, Mr. Cassidy. I understand that. But you've got to understand Mr. E.H. Harriman himself of the Union Pacific Railroad gave me this job. And I've got to do my best, don't you see? Your best don't include getting yourself killed. Dynamite's ready, Butch. Mr. E.H. Harriman himself, he had the confidence of... Open the door or that's it. You think E.H. Harriman would get himself killed for you, Woodcock? I work for Mr. E.H. Harriman on the Union Pacific Railroad, and he entrusted me. And yet, you know, it's it's played for laughs in the scene. They're sticking up for him. They're saying, like, you should deserve a raise. We like you, Woodcock. They're so nice to Woodcock that when you see him again... And there's a little shot where the camera recognizes that because of Butch and, Butch and Sundance blowing up his train car... He has scars and bruises on his face. That's the most recognition you get of the fact that they're doing something bad. All right, Amy, that was a fun conversation. I really enjoyed that one. And I'm very excited about what we're going to do next week. We are taking a pause in our Best Picture winner to do a little bit of, I mean, honestly, why am I trying to hide it? We're talking about Dune. Dune 2 is coming out. We need a refresher. We want to talk about it. It was technically nominated for Best Picture. It did not win Best Picture. So Birdman, uh, we did tease that. We're going to put that on the shelf so we can look at this 
phenomenon. This movie Dune that came out during the end of the pandemic, and now we got the sequel that people are going bananas for. Oh, I'm very excited about this. I actually just rewatched the first Dune because I saw the second Dune and it's amazing. And I really just think these two films back to back are fantastic. Honestly, really fantastic. Well, I am. I can't wait. Uh, and I, I honestly, this is good for me because I need a refresher on this movie as well. I don't want to go in there empty, uh, empty handed, asking a lot of questions about why this is happening or why that's going on. Oh, no, you absolutely have to watch the first one before you watch the second one, because you will not understand anything in the second one if you are not completely caught up. And also on that note, Paul, I did pick up the AMC uh, Dune Sandworm Popcorn Bucket. I got one for me. I got one for you. Yes, we got thank matching you. Dune I am buckets. going to pay you back. Thank off. you so much. You are the best. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Okay. So uh, just a reminder, our Art of Schwing shirt is available in the T Public store. Uh, my book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, is now available for pre-order. It's available in the UK and Canada as well. You go to my website or Unspooled website to pre-order your copy. That really helps me. And if you do, I'll, uh, I'll send you a personal postcard. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram, and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, see the official API list of Unspooled films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. estimated 500 horsepower sounds like how about that that's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience and that that's our legacy you ready to be a part of it unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S order now at Acura.com you haven't heard about the McCrispy yet well then, you probably haven't heard the sweet silence after the first crispy bite either. Go try it for yourself to hear the best not sound you've ever heard.